The Guardian. Guardian Holiday Offers is pleased to bring you a great selection of worldwide trips from our trusted partners. From cultural tours and adventure holidays to river cruises and cottage breaks, we have something for everyone. To find your perfect break, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash travel with us. That's guardian.co.uk forward slash travel with us. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. JR is back and JH is gone. Exit stage left. That's JR from Dallas, of course, which returned to Channel 5 after 21 years this week. And JH, well, that's Jeremy Hunt, of course, the MP formerly known as the Culture Secretary, who has been reshuffled to health. We find out everything you need to know about his successor at the DCMS, Maria Miller. And we talk to Sir Peter Bazalgette about the return of BBC Two's Food and Drink. Plus, we catch up with all things Leveson. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. I'm joined for the first part of the show by Dan Sabber, The Guardian's Head of Media and Tech, and Media Guardian reporter Lisa O'Carroll. How are you both? Tremendous. I think recovered from Edinburgh and now spry, sprightly and ready for the new year of who knows what. Have you made it to the Paralympics yet? I certainly have. And I'm going again on Sunday. What did you see, Lisa? I saw a number of um, Paralympians, John, well, that's in good various news. athletic As expected. performances. T-something, T-something, and T-something. No, I saw the wheelchair race, which was amazing. Uh, I was lucky enough to go to the opening ceremony, courtesy of Channel 4, so um, that's my... Um Payola on the table there, John. But but those Channel Four had a pretty good show, made a pretty good show of it, I think, all round. And you've been judging the student media awards today, Dan. Is that right? We have, and um, no announcements at all because I think uh, we've got an announcement no in a couple of months. But uh, I was judging reporter of the year, and really, sort of two or three standout entries. And if anyone's ever going to enter the student media awards again, please do not send stories about drunken rugby clubs or about how poorly paid college porters or staff are because these stories we see again and again every year and they're just not original. I just you know what I really want is a reporter going out and reporting in the outside world a bit. So any any candidates who sent in those stories that their hearts are sinking across the nation. Yes. <laughs> well on to business. Uh, and the talk of the dinner parties this weekend will be the new culture secretary, Maria Miller. And if it isn't, well frankly you're going to the wrong dinner party. But who is she? Tom Clark of The Guardian's Politics Weekly Podcast is here with some handy talking points. Well, the first thing to know about Maria Miller is quite how little there is to know, and that's one of her great advantages. She comes in as a new face, someone who no one's got very many prejudices about because not very many people have heard of, and that means, crucially for David Cameron, that she ticks the box as someone who can receive the all-important Leveson report with clean hands, which the solid hands of Jeremy Hunt certainly wouldn't have been able to do. So that's definitely tick point number one for Maria Miller. I think that there are often said to be two types of Conservatives that hold the Conservative Party together and you can conceive them as the types of people who are interested in conservation of society and therefore would be all out against, I don't know, a new out-of-town shopping development or something and then the kind of gung-ho business brigade who are always in favour of new out-of-town shopping developments, for example. Now, Jeremy Hunt, I would say, was on the pro-business, pro-market forces side of things. 
from what we know about Maria Miller, which I can't stress enough isn't an awful lot, she seems to be more in the mother's union mould. She's very keen on presenting herself as a working mother and has been keen on flexible working and stuff and courting working mothers rather than courting businesses. On the other hand, where she has stuck out and made a more controversial stand, it's been on those moral religious type issues, taking a suspicious line on things like gay marriage and rather restrictive line on abortion or reproductive rights. And so maybe a more traditional type of conservative, which in media department terms might mean that she'll be less concerned with a gung-ho approach from Ofcom than she would be with a gung-ho approach to the nine o'clock watershed. Now, the last thing that we definitely know about Maria Miller is that she's just come from an absolutely poisonous political brief. She was the disability minister at a time when there's savage cuts going on in the world of disabled provision and disabled benefits. She's not popular, unsurprisingly, with the disabled charities just now, but I think it could have been an even worse story. I think she has an emollient way of working with charities, and I noticed that much more in the happier circumstances for her of her previous post as Shadow Families Minister before the last election. So what I'll be looking out for is to see whether when it comes to the arts world in particular, she's able to build some of those bridges back, which Jeremy Hunt built in opposition, burnt pretty quickly when he cut the arts budget on taking power and Maria Miller might just be the woman to try and start constructing them again. Well, my thanks to Tom Clark there, and if you're wondering about the music, that's exactly the sort of thing I play at my dinner parties, or at least the one I last had back in 2004. Dan, as Tom suggested there, um, Maria Miller, a bit of an international woman of mystery. Yeah, but I think as Tom said there as well, also potentially a good thing, the culture department badly needed a fresh face. I think certainly the media industry, after the sort of bruising experience, the sky bid, whatever you think of how close Jeremy Hunt was to the James Murdoch or otherwise, whatever you think of that, I think most of the media industry was sort of absolutely sort of tired of him. Uh, the people who were against the bid so felt felt highly aggrieved as they learned more about his approach and, and conduct. And I think he, even those in favour of the bid, well, News Corp or News International, I think probably, you know, didn't feel they got what they wanted from him either. So I think the great irony is the thing that Jeremy Hunt's most closely associated pushing in terms of media policy, the thing that seems most quixotic, of course, is his local TV initiative. But, but so many bidders have come through now and the process is so far advanced that the one thing you might expect uh, a successor of his, of his to tear up sort of uh, straight away is probably too far advanced and actually doing better than expected. So I don't think we'll see any sort of big immediate change there. I think the issues for Miller are twofold, how to handle the Leveson inquiry and the communications white paper coming up. We mentioned Leveson there, and that's going to be in her intro just within literally a few weeks of her taking up the post. So uh, it's an it's, uh, interesting time for her to, to begin this new job. Well, I think she's going to be the one sort of frankly on receive. You know, uh, you know Leveson has to have a cabinet minister to, to report to. It looks like it will be the culture secretary. But, of course, the truth is that real decisions about how to respond to Leveson will be taken, frankly, by the prime minister. And I think George Osborne, Michael Gove, um, I doubt Guy Black will be very engaged there. Telegraph policy advisor and former uh, spin doctor to Michael Howard. So, uh, look, there's going to be a lot of lobbying and a lot of conversations, and I think Maria Miller is going to be in the slightly sort of invidious position of having to justify and dis- discuss and justify whatever position government takes in response to Leveson. And the communications white paper, what are the sort of key issues she'll be looking at there? Is it things like broadband, digital radio, switchover? Yeah, you got it. I mean, sort of, I mean, everything in the kitchen sinks going into there, what to do about ITV, Channel 4, Channel 5 licenses post switchover. 
what are, shall we switch off FM or not? You know, the thing that the Jeremy Hunt was so keen not to take a decision on, and um, there was no pressing need to take a decision on, to be frank. But, you know, do we bite the bullet and do that? Or, you know, is that a madness? Yes, there'll be decisions on broadband. If we want to put any, you know, how do we push broadband forward or do we just let the market and a tiny bit of the BBC license fee push that on and you know and a whole range of issues and online safety and security you know online safety and security and you know and so on and so forth and that is the way even with the media part of the whole DCMS brief it's not a big department uh, you know, it's not spending hundreds of billions of pounds. On the other hand, you're dealing with issues that people just care passionately about, and you can handle one wrongly, and suddenly, you know, a, a library in Wilsdon or a, a sports centre in Harlow, and suddenly you're sort of suddenly in a confrontation you didn't quite expect. So, I think it's a job that requires all sort of person skills uh, as much as uh, good policy judgment. And it's farewell to Jeremy Hunt, Lisa, uh, which is not entirely unexpected, of course. He's off to, to health. How do you think history will remember him? Is it all about Fred Michel's text messages? Uh, I mean, you think about the Olympics, but it's, it's been sort of, feels like it's been more of Seb Coe's achievement than, than Jeremy Hunt. Maybe that's a bit harsh on him. Well, it's, it's quite interesting. I think everybody was, well, certainly I was taken by surprise that he got health. It's a massive promotion for him. And it puts a line in the sand for him in terms of his relationship with David Cameron. David Cameron is giving him his full backing, despite what happened during Leveson. The other interesting thing is, and um, let's not forget there are other ministers in the DCMS, Hugh Robertson, the Olympics minister, he got a very small promotion, you would say. He had parliamentary undersecretary for the DCMS with the portfolio of sports, including the Olympics, and obviously the Olympics have done tremendously well for London and for the country. So he gets a promotion to Minister of State, I think, and Ed Vasey remains in the same portfolio they're going to slice up tourism which John Penrose had and divide that among the three I guess or the two probably more likely so how will Jeremy Hunt be um, remembered Um, let's see how he does in health after the car crash that went on there the other question Lisa is whether Jeremy will actually get criticised by the Leveson inquiry and whether he'll last very long at health my instinct is that the Prime Minister is being feels very confident that Jeremy Hunt won't be criticised by Leveson I'm not sure that he's right to be 100% confident. Well, it's, it's funny, I was, I was speaking to somebody today who knows the inner machinations of the Cameron government far better than I do. And as he said, it'll be very painful for Cameron to do what he's probably going to do when the Leveson report comes out, which is really not go very far with it. Um, we've already had indications that he's preparing to support um, self-regulation and another last chance saloon for the press. But as this person said, that pain is going to be and the pain of the outcry that will derive from you know, the outcry of the public um, when they will go, what was that all about? And was that just a waste of taxpayers' money? That is far less than the pain he will get from the Sun and the Mail if they turn on him. And the Lewis Inquiry, Dan's due to report in uh, November, we hear now. Yeah, look, there's an awful lot for him to do. I mean, obviously, Leveson sent out this much discussed, as written by, uh, written up by Elisa, controversial 116 page rule 13. That's the uh, public inquiry. It's a sort of a right of re- last ditch right of reply. So when you're about to draft up the final report, you sort of say to somebody, I might criticise you and I might say these bad things about you. And this is my letter to you under rule 13 uh, of the inquiry, inquiry rules 2006. And so this is your chance to defend yourself. And the one that's been sent out of newspapers is 116 pages long. So, And that's obviously created some 
some issues in the industry but what it also tells you is the length of that letter and the fact that people haven't replied or you know as only relatively recently been received tells you there's an awful lot of i think drafting work to go and lisa there's been no shortage of developments relating to phone hacking this week uh, and news international they tried to have one of the phone hacking damages cases thrown out of court and this is the first time that's happened yeah they got a, a hearing listed yesterday on thursday for October the 10th to have the case brought by Mary Ellen Field, who you might remember as the was the financial advisor to Elle McPherson. She had a pretty harrowing tale to tell at Levison, um, where she spoke of being under suspicion for leaking stories to the press by Elle when allegedly her phone had been hacked and this could have been the source of the stories. Now News International is saying there isn't evidence for that, I believe, and they're trying to get the, the case thrown out. It's, it's very interesting because it could represent a change of tack by News International who have up to now, their attitude has been let's get these cases out of the public domain, let's get them settled. And Dan, all indications from the police that we're going to have uh, many more instances of suspected phone hacking and these cases are going to run and run. Well, I mean, we've got uh, the eight who have been charged with phone hacking rating offences, including Rebecca Brooks and Andy Coulson. They're now going to the Crown Court. Uh, those cases are going to the Crown Court later this month, but there's an awful lot of pre-trial, this, that, and the other, because we've got to work out whether to have one case or eight separate cases and so on and so on. So I think, you know, this time next year on Media Talk, John, we might be talking about actual court cases starting. I'm, I'm not 100% sure we will be, but I, uh, I think that's the kind of yeah, time frame we're looking for. The word on the street is, you know, uh, springtime. Maybe early summer for I'd be cases. In, I, look, I, I'd be impressed. And, of course, the other open inquiry is the um, Elverdon inquiry still, you know, having arrested a lot of people. That's the inquiry, you know, corrupt payments made by journalists, not just at the News International, particularly The Sun, but elsewhere, um, to public officials. And, I mean, that's sort of a lot of arrests but no charges. So that's another open book, which is a long way from closing, clearly. OK, well, all things phone hacking and Leverson related, of course, at mediaguardian.co.uk. It's time now to turn our attention to the small screen and Food and Drink, which is coming back. That's right, the uh, the Food and Drink magazine show that started on BBC Two in 1982 and ran all the way until 2001. Just what BBC Two needs right now, another show about food. Sir Peter Bazalgette, best known for Big Brother, was one of the show's early producers. Its very first presenter was Simon Bates, don't you know? But his stint on the programme didn't start well, as he told me earlier. I had a presentation team which wasn't quite right, and I didn't make it very well. And actually, (laughs) the ratings fell, and it got axed. But by mistake, they had already ordered another series. And at that point, you could call it the 13th hour, I had put together the presentation team of Chris Kelly, Michael Barry, and Jilly Goulden. And so they had to take these extra shows, even though they actually axed the series, and they took off like a rocket. And it lasted for 20 years. It was, you know, uh, alongside Have I Got News For You and Top Gear, one of the three biggest hits on BBC Two for, for, for a large part of that time. So it was, right, it was influential. More to the point, you know, in a magazine show like Food and Drink with lots of different stuff in it, you have to keep on coming up with different sort of magazine ideas. And some of those ideas are now <laughs> long-running formats, some that I managed to produce, and like Ready, Steady, Cook, and others that I failed to recognize the value of, <laughs> things like MasterChef and Bake Off and so on. I mean, I'm not decrying those shows. They're great shows. I'm just saying that the germ of them existed in little films we used to make with chefs many years ago. 
And it's never easy bringing back a, a long-running show from the dead, but it's particularly difficult. I think Food and Drink was last on in 2001, and the TV environment's very different now, and certainly there are there are a million and one cookery shows around, when well, I'm guessing there weren't when, when you started in the, back in the 80s. No, there weren't so many around in the 80s. There was Marta Jaffrey and Delia Smith, uh, but there weren't as many as there are now. But there were quite a few, and it ended in, in, in 2000, 2001, whenever it was. Um, was that why it ended, because there were so many rivals? you know i mean it had been running a very long time and the controller fell out of love with it who was jane root the great thing about having a food and drink magazine show and i and i i really welcome the fact they're bringing it back i think it's a lovely idea i hope it works i hope it gets a good audience is that you know there is a great interest in the politics of food and consumer issues around food and products and food safety and diet and all these things. If you can have that element of the show, as well as the recipes and the chef's uh, sequences and all the rest of it, it, you know, it could be quite attractive. The only reservation I have is that we've sort of moved on a bit in television terms, and many of the shows now are reality shows with a sort of plot really that take like a competition that you say who's going to win it takes you all the way through the show think about a magazine show it's got about five or six items so i'm hoping that it will be able to keep the attention of the viewers even though it isn't you know in the modern manner of a reality show yes the fear is well let me let me give you some of the bump from the from the bbc2 announcement they said it will feature the the latest debates and discussions from the world of gastronomy and uh, delivering up-to-date news views and consumer issues but the worry is they sort of top gearize it like they tried to do with um, gardener's world and it all falls a bit flat will we have the uh, the hot or not hob <laughs> that's well, look, my idea to them I'm, I'm throwing that out Baz. i can i can see it gripped you it seems uh, your imagination. I'll, I'll tell you what they haven't asked my for my advice and i'm sure they don't need it but where I asked, my advice would be keep everything in the program of practical significance. So don't have highfalutin discussions about gastronomic trends. Don't do things merely for a laugh or for entertainment. Everything in it should have something you can either eat, cook, or do in a gastronomic sense. That's what I, that was my rule about food and drink. So however strange, you know, we might have had a weird film with toasters bursting into flames and pieces of toast leaping through the air. But actually, despite all the dressing up, it was a consumer test of toasters. We just made it more entertaining. So keep it practical, keep it practical. If they can keep it practical, they could still get a big audience. But if they just go for laughs or just go, I'm sure they won't, but if they did, or, or if they made it a bit highfalutin and saying, you know, is truffle oil in this week? Well, I'm sorry, they'll lose us, you know? So Peter Bazalgett there, or Baz as you might know him better, who's just been appointed Chairman of the Arts Council. He starts his new job in February, when hopefully he'll come back to tell us more. Now, Dan Saber has left us, but I'm delighted to say we've been joined by The Guardian's TV editor, Vicky Remote Control Frost. Vicky, how are you? Hello, I'm fine. I'm enjoying my new and extended name. It's exactly. lovely. It'll Thank catch you. on, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, is it a good idea to bring back food and drink to BBC Two, do you think? Well, given that BBC Two already has a surface of food and drink, um, and it does very well, I sort of don't see why not. But equally, it's not going to be the same programme, is it? I mean, it was all about the presenters, and it was all about being of its time, and and basically we're just having a food magazine show, which will be nice, and I'm sure will be a lovely thing, but it feels to me slightly neither here nor there. Yeah, well, perhaps they'll put that on the the publicity when it comes back. (laughs) Food and drink, slightly neither here nor there. Uh, but the big news this week, of course, is the return of Dallas to yes. Channel 5. A uh, mixture of kind of old stars and new, and it got 3 million viewers. So they'll be happy with the uh, the ratings. But were you happy with the product? 
Well, I must be honest, I didn't see Dallas you're gonna first say you're time too young. around. I don't know I'm entirely too young, but I did have a mother who didn't really... Well, I still have a mother who didn't really let me watch any TV, which sort of means... I have, as I say to her now, I blame her for like great holes in my career. So I didn't see Dallas first time round. And so last night when I was watching it, I actually found it quite difficult to follow. I spent my whole time going, who? Who is that? And how are they related to them? What is this? You know, and it, what it's is like me in Parade's End. <laughs> yes, it was exactly. And uh, yes, I found it quite difficult. But then I started to quite enjoy it after a while. But... I do think it sort of feels to me like, without maybe kind of the old series to reference it to, I wonder if it totally stands up as that kind of piece of American soapy, kitschy, ludicrous thing that you want to watch. Or whether, you know, if you look at things like Revenge more recently, to me, Revenge is kind of, is what I'd want to watch over Dallas, maybe. Because I think it was just a bit smarter, a bit slicker. What is this Revenge you speak of? It was on E4. It was marvellous. I'm not sure how many other Seven people King thought Card. it was. Wasn't it just somewhere like that? Yeah, yeah. So quite yeah. slick. Yeah, it was. It was sort of like a rich, beautiful, soapy. Nine oh two one oh on the But East with Coast. murder. Yeah. yeah, yeah, great. Now, Lisa, this is not an age-related uh, suggestion. Oh, yes, it is, John. <laughs> but I, I understand you did watch Dallas first time round. I did. My mother let me stay up very late, <laughs> even though I was really young. I do remember it. I was absolutely addicted to it. And what I remember is it was on quite late, and having the toasted cheese and onion sandwiches. I don't know why. That's what I associate with Dallas. Um, and that was what you were having. And the night, you know, when, when JR was shot and the who, you know, everybody was driving around with the who shot JR, uh, stickers in the backs of the cars. Yeah, it was absolutely huge. But you've got to remember. Innocent times. In the UK, it was three channel land. It was BBC One, BBC Two, ITV. Where I'm from, Ireland, at least you had, it was five channel land, RT1, RT2, BBC One, Two and ITV, UTV. So there wasn't much choice. So it was, you know, it was a product of its time. And then there was Dynasty, which was more of the same, slightly bitchier. Um, so what about the new one, Lisa? Did it I didn't see memories? it. I didn't see it. I kind of, um, I wonder if I want to just leave my, my childhood watching Dallas and not reopen that and, and find that actually it's just trash television. <laughs> I, My fear is, Vicky, that it's going to bring back, they're now going to bring back Dynasty and the Colbys and, uh, you know, we're going to mine that whole kind of 80s soap stream. Yes, uh, yeah, I think that's slightly my fear as well, which will be terrible because I didn't see any of them. So we'll be having this conversation over and over again. See, I enjoyed the Colbys. <laughs> I wasn't quite on the old cultural zeitgeist when I was a teenager. <laughs> 20 something <laughs> whatever Last I was yeah. <laughs> um, yeah the one thing I did think weirdly about Dallas given that I don't have any nostalgia for it because I didn't see it first time around was I did find like, that the older cast so the original cast were much more compelling last night than the new cast weirdly even though I didn't know them I don't know whether how that's really happened but it is a thing well, there's another new drama, Up Against Alice, at the very same time. Uh, unfortunate, perhaps, for, for both shows, which was Mrs Biggs on uh, ITV1. Yeah, that was slightly weird scheduling, I thought, because Mrs Biggs is a nice thing for ITV, who have quite a lot of nice things coming, though. You know, they seem, they've done, you know, they have invested in drama, and now we're starting to see that on screen. Yeah, so Mrs Biggs, five-parter, and it's sort of a tale of the great train robbery, but not. It's sort of all told from uh, Mrs Biggs, from uh, Charmian Biggs' point of view. And Charmian is played by Sheridan Smith, who is everywhere at the moment, uh, even though I keep referring to her in things as underrated and then realising actually she is on every screen and stage, so not that underrated. Opposite her is Danny Mays, who fantastic actor. So brilliant casting, and I think a very nicely well-told story, very classy thing. Uh, I like it. 
My hunch is they might be a bit disappointed with four million viewers. It was a tough, tough slot, as I say, with BBC One's Who Do You Think They Are as well. Or who Do You Think You Are, I should say. <laughs> That's a spin-off show on uh, BBC Four. Uh, yeah, I think they might be a bit disappointed with that, particularly because, you know, it has got these other four parts to play out. I find it astonishing how well uh, Who Do You Think You Are... What, is that the right thing? Yes, that is how you say it. I find it astonishing how, how that just continues to be, you know, a big ratings pool and people... I'm really that fascinated. Maybe I'm just entirely self-obsessed. But it was I just... Annie Lennox last night, wasn't it? Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, maybe yeah. that's why, yeah. Sometimes I just sort of think, well, I don't really I think, care that much about I your family you don't yeah. even know about. But I, it continues to perform very well. well. I did enjoy the one with Bill Oddie, but I think that's going back a bit. Lovely man. Moving on. Doctor Who was back. We're on a bit of a drama tip here, but that came back on Saturday. Yes, yes. I won't keep going on about ratings figures. That got six or seven million viewers, which is kind of industry standard, but they always tell us that, you know, 26 gazillion people watch it on uh, catch-up, so we should ignore the overnights. Well, uh, that is Stephen Moffat's thing, actually. He does get very cross about overnight figures. And with some reason, I suppose, because actually, you know, fair enough, consolidated figures are very good. As was this first episode, I thought. In fact, I thought it was a really classic Doctor Who episode. The twists were fantastic. The way he introduced not only the new assistant, but also... Oh, not assistant, a companion. Sorry, Doctor Who fans. Steady. He, yes, I know. The post bag already. So he introduced the new companion and then also laid on a twist on top of that. Fantastic. Really, a really great episode. And I think you could tell that Moffat had had a great deal of fun with it. And everyone on screen was really enjoying it. And uh, it was a bit weird that I started to find the Daleks quite scary and started to get a bit scared of an early Saturday evening programme featuring children's monsters. But I did think it was quite effective. And Stephen Moffat, he described this series as uh, sort of, uh, they're all going to be blockbusters. Every episode is going to be a blockbuster, as opposed to the last series, which was like one incredibly complicated long story arc. And he said he was doing it differently just because he wanted to do something different. But was it also, do you think, a bit of a response to, you know, some of the moans and complaints that last time around just got too complicated? Well, I asked him that, actually, uh, in a piece for the paper recently. And I sort of said, so is this about the fact that everyone has... Everyone did complain that last series of story arc was incredibly complicated. And Stephen always says, children found it perfectly fine. The people who were complaining about it were adults who couldn't keep up with a storyline that's plotted, you know, for children, that sort of thing. Fair enough. And he says it's not a reaction to that. And he always says, when everyone's talking about television dumbing down, why does everyone get cross with me for trying to clever it up? And this is just me taking a different alternative tack and uh, looking at a new way to do it. So he says not. Lisa, did you watch Doctor Who with your cheese and onion sandwiches? I didn't, but I did watch the Paralympics, which you can't forget to mention this week, John, because last week myself and Vicky, Vicky were we were having a little bit of a downer, weren't we, on the opening ceremony and how they didn't quite get it right with Jon Snow and Krishna Gurumurthy. So I went during the week and it really has been amazing. And I think Channel 4 have had a really, really good Paralympics. The murder ball. Wow, what a sport. Um, as somebody said in The Guardian today, that's wheelchair rugby for those who haven't caught this sport yet. <laughs> Opened last night with the um, British team against the USA. Where else is it legitimate to try and knock somebody out of their wheelchair? Amazing. And lots of plaudits for, um, for Channel 4's um, Adam Hills with his last leg show. Yes, and I think it's very good, actually, that show. It's very funny. He makes the jokes that perhaps other people might think he shouldn't make, and he, he makes it all very funny. I think, actually, um, I was certainly over last weekend, you could see them sort of coming into their own with the coverage and 
you know, sort of all their new presenters sort of finding their stride. And they have approached it really well. I think all the explanations of how the sports work, about all the different... It's been brilliant. It's been really good coverage, I think. Because I think that was the problem with the Paralympics when it began. We didn't know what to expect. A, you're feeling uncomfortable watching. Should you be enjoying watching somebody who's got one arm and, you know, two legs amputated? You know, you don't know what to do with your own emotions when you're watching it. But as you get into it, then those, all that sort of... Anxiety dissolves and, yeah, it becomes more of a competition and you actually see them as sportsmen and women. Um, And I think Channel 4 have done a lot to to help us as a nation um, review our own, or how we interact or engage with people who have disabilities. Yeah, they've got the tone exactly right, I think. They've done really well. And last note on TV this week, Vicky, back to drama, is a new BBC4 show, I think it's called Lilyhammer. Is it anything to do with flora and fauna or track and field? I'm guessing from the name of the show. Well, actually, it does have a weird Olympics link. Yes, this is true. To start with, I will say this is a very odd programme. So it's the sort of the latest of BBC Four's Nordic imports. Another one for the press and publicity. <laughs> a very odd programme. Well, it is a very odd programme. And it's sort of this Norwegian comedy drama uh, starring... Um, That's a phrase you would never have heard a few years ago. Yeah, well, no, that's true. Uh, Shall I stop interrupting? Well, no, it's fine. <laughs> Sorry. She's got a, she's got a she Charlotte, she, Charlotte she Green fit of the giggles. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, starring uh, Steve Van Zandt as a uh, mobster, a, a sort of a mob boss. And um, and then he, he basically, he, he testifies against the rest of uh, his, what, how do we say this, a mob, I guess, I don't know. And uh, as part of his witness protection scheme, he says, I want to go to Lilyhammer. And he says he wants to go and live in Lilyhammer because he saw it once on the Olympics and that's why he wants to go there. So that's where he goes. It's quite odd because he's talking sort of in, you know, American English all the way through. He do, he speaks in English with very occasional lapses into Norwegian. But Norwegian people are speaking Norwegian back to him largely. So that's quite strange in terms of the subtitling. And it's also, you do feel sometimes, I mean, he does that sort of hangdog kind of mobster sort of thing very well. Obviously, that's what he does. But it's very odd. You feel slightly like he's turned up on a foreign commercial sometimes for the money. And now it's going to be screened <laughs> somewhere where people might actually look at it a bit more. <laughs> it does feel a bit like that. It's, it's a very strange thing. Like, and, like um, Bill Murray's Suntory Time in Lost in Translation. Oh, yes. He adds rapidly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's quite strange. Exactly like that, I can it's, tell. It's yeah. quite a strange thing, and I think it's interesting that it's on during the week rather than at the weekend. It's also only a half-hour thing. It's not your, you know, it's not the new killing or the bridge or Borgen. It's quite a sort of a step change from that. And, and I'm That's a health sl- warning. slightly unsure. Well, I'm, it's not that I hated it. It's just that I sort of just was thinking this is very strange all the way through. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And it's time now, finally, for our Media Monkey Quiz of the Week. You can play along at home, and if you like, pause it, Google the answer, press play again, and you'll get five out of five. Right, question number one. Which TV producer, who warned of the dangers of profit without purpose, received a total pay packet of $4 million? Liz Murdoch, Liz Murdoch, Liz Murdoch, do I win? (laughs) Yep, you only get one point, even though you said it three times. That was Liz Murdoch, of course, founder and uh, executive chairman, I think, of Shine. Question number two. Who has swapped hitting sixes for knocking seven bells out of his opponents? That's uh, Freddie Flintoff. Oh, yes, I saw this story, yes. Oh, thank you, Vicky. A reader. (laughs) Nice to meet you. Freddie Flintoff, who was uh, making a new show on Sky One in which he becomes a professional boxer, which sounds rather serious. I I was getting a bit confused there because I think uh, Michael Vaughan has been... uh, 
uh, announced as going on Strictly. I mean, obviously everyone's announced as going on Strictly and then they don't. But I wondered, I was confused by Seven Bells. I thought it was like a dance of some sort for a moment. Well, yeah, that, that was just a way of getting six and seven. Into, I left you at sixes and sevens, didn't I? Yeah. I wonder who will suffer more serious injury because Strictly Come Dancing, you know, can be quite nasty. Sort of. Yeah, pretty not as nasty as pro boxing. All right, question number three. O'Carroll's one up. This is a mystery round. You have to guess the magazine. This is how it describes itself. It has upmarket editorial. Interrupt me as soon as you think you know the answer. Upmarket editorial, strong lifestyle content, stunning photography, and excellent print production. It's moved away from the celebrity sector and its obsession with made up stories, scurrilous gossip, poor production values. Is it a celebrity magazine? Hello, magazine. Well, is yes. it Hello, magazine? That's yeah. ridiculous. Roy Greenslade wrote about it yesterday. Well, thank really? you very much. Thanks so, what's it becoming? Don't give away the source of the question, Lisa. It's becoming. Well, that's it. This is why uh, Hello, magazine has convinced the Audit Bureau of Circulations that it should be in the lifestyle and fashion category and not lumped in with the celebrity sector. Well, that's so it doesn't ridiculous, do celebrities isn't anymore. It? That's just as Roy pointed out. But well, word has it's going to be renamed What Ho. <laughs> It's gone that up market. Can I just say, the free cover mount with Tatler next month is hilarious. The free cover mount is... Is it a, a whip? Free saddle? T- it's a free family ticket to the independent school show. Is No other magazine <laughs> in the world could put that as their cover mount. It's hilarious. And appalling, obviously, but also hilarious. Question number four. This is a bit serious. What's new with the BBC iPlayer? Oh, you can have it on your mobile. You can Very download good. it and take it abroad or on oh, the yeah. train with a crappy well, signal. You can always have it on your... Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can, but you can download stuff, download isn't that stuff. it? You can That's download for 21 days, is it, or 30 days? Isn't this the sort of thing the BBC should be charging us for, Vicky, in a serious point in the media no, market? No, I already pay my licence fee. I'm not going to pay it again. Outrageous. Well, let's cover that off. And question number five, a mystery round. Who is this? The, the award-winning screenwriter Abby Mann has died at the age of 80. He won an Academy Award in 1961 for Judgment at Nuremberg. Abby, excuse me, sorry. Abby Mann also won several Emmys, including, including one in 1973 for a, f- for a film which featured a, poli- a police detective called... <laughs> Oh, never fails to... I think that's to, one uh, for you, John. Never fails to raise a smile, does it? Yeah, Charlotte Green, of course, who, along with Harriet Cass, is uh, leaving Radio 4. They're not the only newsreaders leaving BBC Radio. Fenella Fudge, Frank Godfrey and a whole load of freelancers are also leaving Radio 2. Vicky, you're going to miss them, I read. I am going to miss them because I am a, a, a really sort of dyed-in-the-wool Radio 4 listener. I think there's a real intimacy with radio that you don't get with television and it's partly that presenters and announcers are in their jobs for so much longer. But it's also about the way you listen, I think, that you develop a, a different relationship with them. And so you do feel like you know them. Obviously, you don't know them, but you feel like you do. There's a real wrench when people you really like from radio move or go away. I think it can be a sort of quite a sad thing. Well, my thanks to Vicky Frost and Lisa O'Carroll. I think it was 12 points each in the quiz eventually, so well done. Dead heat. Also to Mr Dan Saber, Tom Clark, and of course, Sir Peter Basiljet. You can comment on everything you've heard on the podcast and our blog or our Facebook wall where you can share your favourite food and drink recipes. My name's John Plunkett and Media Talk was produced by Mr Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. Guardian Holiday Offers is pleased to bring you a great selection of worldwide trips from our trusted partners. From cultural tours and adventure holidays to river cruises and cottage breaks, we have something for everyone. To find your perfect break, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash travel with us. 
That's guardian.co.uk forward slash travel with us.